Again, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. And uh, I'm really excited about what Stephanie Zukowski came and announced today. Um, I think it's going to be awesome to have some special music monthly again. So get ready for that. And I hope there's some of you that will use your gifts and talents there. Well, I quickly learned that uh, working with junior high boys can be a dangerous endeavor. Although it's a really fun endeavor, if you've ever worked with junior high boys, it's just such an incredible, incredibly awkward time of life. I mean, let's face it, it, those are hard years. And for several summers, I'd worked as a camp counselor, and I was working with these 12, 14-year-old boys. And I remember my very first summer, I was going to be a camp counselor. I was, I was getting my speech ready. You know, when the kids come in and they're getting their stuff laid out in the cabin, uh, you want to give them a speech. And it goes something like this, hey, we're all here to have a good time, but in order to do that, there's some rules you need to follow and understand. And I'd rehearse this and rehearse this, and I was going to be counseling uh, with a seasoned veteran. But we hadn't really discussed how to get the plane off the runway. And so all the kids come in, they got their stuff in the cabin, they're all excited, and they sit down, and just as I open my mouth, he starts talking. I said, okay, well, you know, he's done this before, he knows what he's doing, but the speech he gave was much different than the speech that I was going to give. He started out by saying, you know, guys, Chad and I are here this week to be your friends. I thought, okay, again, not how I was going to start things, but he's a seasoned veteran, let's see where this goes. And we never really got to the rules part of the speech. And the week was awful. These kids were terrible. They were in each other's stuff all the time. They were beating each other all the time. They were getting our stuff. At times they were washing down, do you remember those things called nerd ropes? They were washing those things down with Pepsis. It was horrible. And I quickly learned where there's no discipline bad things are going to follow. Now, this isn't just in the arena of camp counseling. Let's just think about that for a second. Because what would you think of a coach who would just tell us players what to do, but would never run them through any drills? Or a math teacher that would give out tests, but would never correct the things that the students got wrong? Or a doctor that would find a diagnosis, however, he would never bother telling the patient if there was bad news? Then there's another arena in which discipline is essential. It's in the arena of the church. It's vital. As a matter of fact, it has historically been considered one of the marks of the authentic church. And the reason I'm doing, bringing this up is because there's a prerequisite to discipline in the church, and that is membership. See, before we can hold somebody accountable for their actions... We have to understand as a church, what do they believe? We accomplish that through church membership. And some of you may be asking, well, look, Chad, I'm a Christian. And uh, what's it really matter if I'm a member or not? As a matter of fact, this thing you're bringing up, is it even biblical? Which is a great question. And some of you, frankly, may be very suspicious of institutions in general. If you're older here today, you grew up with church membership, you kind of get it. But then again, you didn't grow up seeing the same things our younger people have seen. 
They've seen institutions fall, big institutions that people didn't think were going to fall, big banks, big corporations, big investment companies, and all of that, seeing all of that greed makes a lot of younger generations extremely suspicious when you talk about joining something. It reeks of exclusivity. And church membership is kind of a, a big deal because it's a, it's a narrower gate than that of being a Christian. And if someone tells me they're a Christian, that also doesn't necessarily mean they could be a member of this church or another church. A church is going to have a number of doctrines as well as a code of conduct based on the scriptures that requires their members to live by that. And again, back to that question, is it biblical? Is it biblical for a church to ask people to sort of go this extra mile and become members of the church? And what we're really boiling this down to is why become a church member? Why do it? And this morning, I want to take a look at five biblical reasons. Now, I'm calling these implications because you don't just crack open the Bible and read, thou shalt become a member of thine local church, First Baptist Sheridan. It doesn't say that. However, I do believe there are five biblical foundational implications for why we have membership at a church. I want to look at those today. I'm going to hold off. I'll be reading several scriptures today as I work my way through these five implications. So we'll do the scripture reading in just a moment. But I want to start out with a definition of what church membership is. And this comes from Nine Marks. I really like Nine Marks Church. It's led by a guy named Mark Dever. Uh, rather, it's not, a, it's not a church. It's more of an organization that works with churches and how to do um, uh, things like leadership and, and organization. So from the Nine Marks definition, this is led by, again, a guy named Mark Dever. He's a part of a, a Baptist church in the Washington, D.C. area. He defined church membership this way. He says, church membership is a formal relationship between a local church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship, and the Christian submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. Now, let me point out some big ideas there. First, it's the church body formally affirms an individual's profession of faith and baptism is credible. In other words, the church, the leaders therein, affirm, have a conversation with someone to find, with someone to find out, tell us what you believe about Christ, how you became a Christian, and whether or not you were baptized. Then it promises to give oversight to that individual's discipleship. In other words, we are covenanting with someone and also saying we're taking it on as our responsibility to ensure that you are being discipled as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then also that the individual formally submits his or her discipleship to the service and the authority of this, this body and its leaders. In other words, this particular body and the leaders at this particular body are the ones that, that you are coming into a covenant relationship with and saying, I will submit to the leadership at this particular church at this particular time. So that's the definition I want to work from when we're talking about church membership. And I want to move into these five implications now that come from the scriptures. And it starts again with, with discipline. And church membership is implied by the way a church is to discipline its people. 
This comes from Matthew chapter 18. I want to read verses 15 through 17. It says there, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, and that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And you've probably heard this passage before. This is how Christians are to confront other Christians in sin, whether they've been sinned against personally or they're just aware of a sin in the body. And notice this passage is not qualified in any way about what the sin is, just if someone sins against you. First, it says to confront them. Maybe it could be uh, a spouse who's done something they shouldn't have. Maybe it could be a, a business deal in which someone was cheated. Maybe someone has spoke disparagingly about you or a member of your family, but you keep it on a personal level. You give that person a chance just in that one-on-one to repent. You know what? I screwed up. And if you've ever had somebody that loved you enough to do that, I mean, it's, it's special. I've had uh, relationships deepen because I was confronted by somebody or I confronted somebody else. There's a trust that you established there. And if that doesn't work, you grab uh, another person and then you both go and you talk to them and confront them. If they're still unrelenting, This is where the church is expected to become the final judge in these matters. And I don't want to underemphasize the uh, the importance of this subject of church discipline. uh, Because clearly, God wants the church to be deciding what to do in these cases. Now, this doesn't happen very often. As a matter of fact, in all of my years in the church, it's only happened two or three times. But it's so important, and I love something that um, Al Mohler talks about this. He wrote a book called The Compromised Church, The Present Evangelical Crisis. He says this, The decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. No longer concerned with maintaining purity of confession or lifestyle, the contemporary church sees itself as a voluntary association of autonomous members, everybody just sort of doing What they want to do is what he's arguing with minimal moral accountability to God, much less to each other. And then he goes on and he says, and yet without a recovery of functional church discipline firmly established upon the principles revealed in the Bible, the church will continue its slide into moral dissolution and relativism. Evangelicals have long recognized discipline as an important mark of the authentic church Authentic biblical discipline is not an elective, but a necessary and integral mark of authentic Christianity. I agree with him. It's incredibly important, and we're not doing our jobs when we just let sin slide, and it's not confronted, and there's nothing done about it. So the church then needs to discipline, and without it, we start looking just like the culture that's all around us. Now, unfortunately, what happens like nine times out of ten, I'm going to go further and say this probably happens 99 times out of 100, is that the people just end up walking away from the church. You don't see them again. And this is not what God intended at all. As a matter of fact, just walking away from the church, not coming back is a sign of unbelief. Peter said they went out from us because they were not part of us. 
Now, this discipline is extremely important, but it begs the question, who is the church? First of all, who are we responsible to judge between? Is it when you have a, a problem with a person at a church down the street? Is it between people who just maybe come here on Christmas and Easter? How do you define this group to who you bring this sensitive issue to? If it says in the text to bring it to the church, who are those people? Should it be someone who's just visiting, checking out Christianity and doesn't even know if it's for them? Because if we're going to stand up here and deal with an incredibly difficult and sensitive issue, uh, I mean, these are family matters. And if you're supposed to treat someone like a tax collector, who do we announce that to? Who are those people supposed to be treating that person that way? Is it somebody visiting from out of town? So oftentimes the issue has been brought up. Is, you know, it's an intensely personal one. It often involves a couple. It's often an infidelity. It seems like when I've been involved in any kind of church discipline issue, that's been the case. Um, it's not always but this is not something you would bring out before someone who does not believe in the truth of God's Word. It's based on the truth of God's Word that we are making these judgments. Therefore, if someone doesn't believe it, why should we bring it up in front of them? Why should we hold them to the standard of the Bible if they've never agreed to that standard? So in this case, it's important to get our arms around, and you're going to hear me say that a few times, we've got to get our arms around well, who is First Baptist Church? Who is here? We're not responsible for the flock at, the, at Cornerstone or The Rock or Bethesda. So who are we responsible for? And again, I know a good many of you, uh, you know, you're not members, but you know what? You've been coming here faithfully. You are essential volunteers, and I never want to in any way denigrate that. You've been in church your whole life. So again, we're not talking about whether or not you're a Christian. I want to be very clear about that. Church membership does not make you a Christian. You could very well be a Christian here today and not be a member, a longtime attender. And... But what we're talking about is whether or not you're willing to identify yourself with this local expression of the body of Christ. So first of all, membership is implied to an implement uh, church discipline. And then secondly, it's necessary because of disfellowship. And I didn't make up that word. It's implied for disfellowship. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's someone that was here and part of our fellowship, because of, but because of church discipline, they are no longer part of our fellowship. And disfellowship, the meaning of it, uh, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We see it in verses 12 and 13. It says, For what have I, this is Paul speaking, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, and he makes a really strong statement purge the evil person from among you. So Paul, he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, and there's some conditions that he listed back in verse 11 that called for disfellowship. There are some who would call this excommunication, but we don't use that term because excommunication, that was something the Catholic Church would do to actually cast you outside of the, the kingdom of God. They uh, believe they had the power to do that. 
So we're not talking about loss of salvation, but there is this disfellowship. And Paul will first acknowledge this uh, in these verses that he's nothing to do with judging outsiders. He says, I don't have anything to do with that. Those who do not claim to have a part of their church or in their church. Now think about that for just a second. Because again, what business do we have judging someone who has not agreed to the same truth that we believe in? Their behavior shouldn't have the same standards. We don't expect Christians to act like non-Christians and non-Christians to act like Christians. Paul says that it is those who are on the inside of the church that we are to judge based on what he says there uh, in verse 11. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And what do you do? And again, it says there in verse 13, God judges those outside. It says, purge the evil person from among you. There's this formal removal of this person from the fellowship of the body. And this is why I'm calling it disfellowship. But if there's no formal sense of who's here and who's not here, then how do we go about doing this? It's like you can't vote someone out if they're going to stop and say, hey, I was never part of this deal to begin with. Why are you voting me? I was never on the island. I can't get voted off the island. So who's on the outside? Who's on the inside? At what point can I make these judgments? Again, is it towards someone who's just visiting that that Sunday? Is it someone who uh, is just attending perhaps on the holidays. You know, if you're with someone a long time, they call it common law marriage if you've never been joined together in matrimony. But we don't have, like, common law membership. So even if someone were to say, listen, I've been here a long time, but have you been here a long time so that we now have the grounds to stop fellowshipping with you? And how long a time is that? A month? A week? Two months? How is our leadership supposed to know if you're in or out unless we have some way of determining that, such as church membership? And this leads us to number three. Um, Thirdly, that membership is implied for submission to elders. It's implied for submission to elders. This comes from Hebrews chapter 13, 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, these are strong words in regard to the relationship that we have with the leadership at our church. And by the way, I'm as just obliged as anyone to submit to the elders. As a matter of fact, whenever I was ordained, I took vows before God that I take as seriously as my marriage vows that I will submit to the leaders and the elders at First Baptist Church. I am one of them, so I do have a voice in the process, but ultimately what that board decides is what I submit to. That's what I go with. And we always agree on every single thing. (laughs) I've never seen a board that worked that way. And we're an elder-led church. 
But we still call a member vote for some things, such as vote for our, our pastors and, and elders. And I consider it a blessed privilege to get to work with the elders we have at First Baptist. It's a hard job. They deal with everything. It's an honor to be selected, but it is a lot of work. Sometimes meetings go well into the night. Sometimes there's multiple meetings. You just don't know. You don't know what's going on. Uh, and they have to deal again with everything. But they are the leaders of our church. Again, along with me, I'm an elder as well. And in this passage we have in Hebrews, we're told what to do, obey and submit. But why? Well, it says there, for they are keeping watch over your souls as, as those who will have to give an account. This is a high calling. In other words, the elders at First Baptist are accountable to God himself as to whether or not they are doing their job in watching over the souls who have been entrusted to them. them. But who are the souls that have been entrusted to the elders at First Baptist Church? How do they know who they are going to be accountable for? This is where there's a requirement for you also to say, I, through the process of membership, am am willfully submitting myself to the elder board at First Baptist Church. All of us are fallen men that, believe me, are having to make decisions in a very weird world right now. It is weird, and it's strange, and it isn't comfortable having to do some of the things and make some of the decisions that, that we're having to make right now. But every elder will give an account before God himself. But again, what does this church mean? Because the elders here aren't accountable for the people at the Presbyterian church. Or the Christian church. Or Illuminate church. So how do we make a distinction? There's got to be a serious implication here that people are to be members of a church. These men uh, that lead us have to know who has made the decision to submit to their leadership and who is not. It's not about a power trip, believe me. It is not about power or control. We are deliberately having to make hard decisions, but we need to know who are we responsible for? Who are we going to give an account for? That was number three. Number four, membership is also implied for pastoral care. For pastoral care. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. And there we read, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's a message that the time was passed on uh, to the future leaders. This was to the the church at Ephesus. And uh, again, this passage begs the question, who is the flock? Because see, in in my job, and we've got a wonderful care pastor, Brad Kremenzik, we're asked to visit all kinds of people. Some go to church here, some don't go to church here. And I don't like ever turning down the opportunity to share the gospel with someone who's in a, in a hospital room, who's thinking about, is this it? As a matter of fact, the very first funeral I did was for a man who was in the hospital. I shared the gospel with him. He accepted Christ when unconscious the next day. You don't know how much time you have. You don't want to miss those opportunities. However, how do you define this flock? 
In 1 Peter 5, 2, it's going to charge the leaders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So we have to be able to, again, get our arms around who is this flock? Are we responsible for everybody in the hospital? Everybody in the town of Sheridan? We have to have a way of defining it. And then finally, membership is implied for this, this metaphor, this phrase, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. If you ever wondered why we use the word member, it comes from this passage, and I've, I've preached on it before, but you get this picture of this close connectedness that we have. And if you are cut off of the body, something bad happens to the whole body. The whole body feels it. And if someone had to leave us or they were disfellowshipped, it should bring pain in the hearts of everyone who's here because of the decision that someone has made against God, against the body of Christ, to go their own way. It should be heartbreaking. And anytime someone is separated or disfellowshipped, it's always with the hope and prayer that they're going to return. If you wonder why it is that you, that you treat someone like a tax collector or you purge this evil person, it's always with the hope and prayer that the pain will force them, it'll cause them, it'll compel them to be reconciled with the body of Christ. That's always the hope. I mean, we're all sinners, right? It's not about talking about sinners if there's either repentant sinners or unrepentant sinners. If somebody's caught up in a sin, we should all feel it. And removal is about restoration. And by the way, it is a beautiful thing when this happens. When people are reconciled to the body. It's like reattaching a limb. The scriptures then imply some kind of distinction is to be made between members and non-members. There's, a way, there's some way to distinguish between those who are part of the local body and those who aren't. These are what I believe five implications, as biblical implications as to why we have church membership. So my hope and prayer is that you would, if you have not considered it before, if you thought it wasn't perhaps necessary, that you would consider it. And we'd have a a membership class from time to time where we talk about this. The next one, oh, this is a pass, great. This passage I want to read earlier. Um, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And this is why there's pain involved with the disfellowshipping. But again, I'd like to consider, uh, for you to consider becoming a member if you aren't currently one, we're having our next membership class on Sunday, September 12th. It's at 1 o'clock, uh, and we'd love to invite you to that. You can either email the office uh, or call the office. Also, we send out a newsletter that has a link that you can register for that class. Another way that we can um, have you become a member of the body uh, is by letter of transfer. In other words, if you're a member at another church that has the same or close enough uh, belief statement as First Baptist, uh, you, can, you can let us know that, let us know about that church, and, and we can get in contact with that church, and we can have your membership transferred. That's sort of like the fast track to membership. Still want to get to know you, still want to pray for you, but that's how uh, membership happens at First Baptist. Again, I would love for you to consider it. Uh, even if you aren't sure, you could attend this class and just see if this is uh, something you believe you're ready to do. No commitment 
uh, when the class is over to join the church. But I hope you all will consider it. And I want to close with a picture of it's my favorite plane. They've actually they've decommissioned this plane. This is the SR-71 Blackbird. It was built by Lockheed. Uh, it flies at the edge of space at about Mach 4. It's had thousands of missile, missiles shot at it. It's never been shot down. By the time they detect it, it can take off and the missile can't catch it. And they use this plane for years. It's been decommissioned only because they've got something else out there, and I don't know what that something else is. It was made for surveillance and reconnaissance. But whenever it's just sitting on the ground, it looks impressive. But it actually leaks fluid. Uh, because it's made so that whenever it's flying at high speed and high altitude, that the skin of the plane gets really hot and the panels expand. And that's what keeps the fluids from leaking. Because the plane was not intended to operate on the ground. It was intended to operate in this harsh environment that no human could withstand unless you were in the plane. You see, that's the way the church is. The scriptures say the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. No man can bring down the church. However, the scriptures do give us guidelines on how the church is to be operating. It'll, hop, it'll operate in the harshest of environments where severe persecution is going on. That church will continue even in places where the, the lives of Christians are being threatened all the time. However, God said, this is how you will operate my church. And when he comes back, he will hold us responsible for how we treated his bride. Church discipline, which necessitates church membership, is part of God's design for the church. And I hope today that you've seen these five biblical reasons for church membership. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we have the local church. Lord, thank you for dying for us, for making a foundation, for making known this mystery called the church. We get hints of it in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you showed us that you're going to bring everyone in who's put their faith in you, into this one body, joined together, connected. Lord, let us feel the pain when someone among us is, is unrepentant about a sin in their life. Lord, forgive us of our own sins. Help us to love each other well. And Lord Jesus, until you, you come to be consummated with your bride, I pray that we would treat her very, very well, as you've intended as you've outlined in your word. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll make two quick announcements. First of all, Tuesday night at 6.30 p.m. here in the auditorium we have a time of prayer. I believe that time of prayer is essential for the life at First Baptist Church. It's led by Gary Kopsa. We'll be meeting here at 6.30 on Tuesday. Secondly, at 5 p.m. today, we are having our summer extravaganza. We've combined a pig roast with what we typically call uh, the end of summer celebration. It's not beginning of school. It's end of summer. 
I hope you can join us at 5 p.m. tonight. If you could bring a dish, you can drop that off in the youth room. We'll have inflatables. We'll have a band playing. It'll be a lot of fun. Hope to see you here tonight. Have a great day. Thanks for being here.